Good morning. Morning, morning. As I t- said this morning, you, you're being robbed this morning. <laughs> uh, but thank you all for this opportunity to come and present a message to you from God's Word. And you look out there, and uh, it's it's cold out there. And uh, we can be sure this is Chardon, the snowiest city in Ohio. So you can be sure that snow will soon be coming this way. And I love to sound so encouraging, right? But actually, this, this, if you're going to give this morning's lesson, a title would be actually just that, be encouraged. Because assuming that the Lord continues to tarry, the seasons will continue. Fall will give way to winter. Winter will, even in Chardon, pass away. And spring will bring its rebirth of grass to mow and flowers to weed. And so the seasons change. And... Part of this, you know, several of us out here like sports, and you may, that's one of the ways we mark the seasons, of course. It's football season or baseball season or such. And this morning, actually, although the man, uh, his life was anything but a virtuous one, there was something that Babe Ruth said that I think actually has some application to us. And he said, never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. In other words, don't let the fear of failure stop you from participating, from playing the game. And we just sang, we were singing all day long of Jesus. Did you sing it well? doesn't matter if you sang it well. I'll spoil it for you now, of course it doesn't. But what does that mean for Christians? Sometimes we think, well, I can't sing well enough. I can't pray well enough. I can't speak well enough, or even more common one is, I don't know the Bible well enough to tell anybody else about it. I just, I might fail. I might not, you know, I might not uh, produce something that's award-winning, so to speak. God calls us to, to use the abilities that we have. We may not always achieve what we're trying to do, but we should try to do our best. Always. We should keep trying. This morning we're going to talk about, not so, so much when you talk about the, the famous figures in the Bible who overcame their, their fears. After a lot of prodding, of course, where Moses did, tried everything to get out of going to Pharaoh. Finally told God, he said, I can't speak well. God said, well, I'll send Aaron with you, essentially. And then Moses finally said, send, send someone else. And that's when God became angry. But eventually, of course, he did go. And we think of people like Joshua, who was told, Repeatedly in the same chapter in Joshua chapter one to be strong, take courage. We think people like David who stand up against giants. This morning we want to talk about some people who are perhaps not the most famous people in the Bible for their courage, but we'll talk about regular common people. Regular common people. You say, well, I'm not a leader of a nation. I'm not a prophet like Moses. I'm not a, a successful military hero, perhaps like Joshua. I'm not a king like David. Not a famous person. If you are famous, by the way, and you have access to lots and lots of money, well, then community colleges of Ohio could use your help. But since none of us is that, the scriptures speak to us a lot about fear and show us that ordinary people like us were able to overcome their fear with faith. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, we, for some understandable reason, sometimes I'll just sort of pass through uh, much of this, this, this passage here, because we're, we're getting to Jesus, if you will. We're getting to Jesus' ministry, if you will, because we're reading through the Bible, we're getting to Jesus' ministry. 
But we're going to start with verse 18 and notice one of the, the people, uh, the person in this, I should say, who often gets overlooked. We think about Jesus, and of course we should, but we think about Jesus, we think only about Jesus here and about, uh, about Mary. But let's consider Mary's uh, husband, or soon-to-be husband, I should say. So it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, uh, prophet Isaiah, by the way, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph was betrothed in, in, Jews, in Jewish society. That meant a lot. There, there are deep social connections there that we don't have time to get into. I can refer you to a book on the subject if you'd like. But suffice to say, Joseph was to marry. This had been arranged years before. And, well, when it came time, Mary was with child. That was an issue. A big, big issue. That was a major issue. Of course, you know, perhaps it should be still in our society today. But for Joseph to have gone through with this, sometimes we don't, we don't quite appreciate that, especially in our condition of our society today. That might have meant disgrace. That might have meant disgrace even associating with someone like this. But Joseph, what did Joseph do? What was Joseph's reaction? Get that woman away from me. He said, it says he was an honorable man. He was a just man. The, uh, the New King James says he was an honorable man. Yes, he was a just man. He was a just man, an honorable man, a decent man, we might say. And he thought about the impact this situation was going to have on Mary. And so what was going through his mind, it says he was unwilling to make her a public example. Or the ESV says he was unwilling to put her to shame. So he resolved to divorce her, yeah, but to divorce her quietly to divorce her quietly. I'm sure that was hard. I'm sure that was hard. I am not married, but I'm sure that was hard for Joseph. It was hard on his, you know, hard on his feelings. It would have been hard for him, a hard decision for him to make. But then the angel of the Lord, of course, told him that take her as your wife because the child that she has uh, conceived is, is of the Holy Spirit. And to Joseph, there's no indication that Joseph said anything like, well, really? Never heard of such a thing before. Is that, I mean, am I, am I hallucinating any of this? Is this serious? Do you have any idea the impact this might have on me? You know, again, we talked this morning about self-centeredness. The impact this might have on me and society and so on. There's no indication of that. Notice it simply says uh, what happens uh, immediately after he's, being, he's done being talked to. Verse 24, it says, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, 
He did it. Somebody says he did it. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Simply put, he did it. He took courage and did what was right. There is no evidence that he hesitated at all, that he thought the matter, you know, as we would say, that he thought the matter, or he had to take, consider to think the matter through twice. He simply did it. We're not told if Joseph and, Mary, if Joseph and Mary faced public ridicule, but they could have. They very easily could have. And regardless, though, there's no indication that Joseph ever thought, well, yeah, well, I have to marry, I have to marry this woman now, so it's not going to be easy for us, but I'll do it anyway. There's no indication that he hesitated. He chose to obey God. Like Joseph, we should not be afraid to follow God's commands, regardless of what society thinks. Regardless, if society says that we are what? You've heard them all. That we are intolerant. We are old-fashioned. We're deluded. We're simple. We're stupid. We're, you've heard them all. But follow God's commands, regardless of what society has to say about it. Now, what happens if society, and of course it has in the past, reacts violently. We talk about wars and fights. I'm talking physical violence. When Jesus was arrested, there was great fear among his followers. And who killed Jesus? They all had him. The Jews had handed him over. The Romans had actually crucified him. And sometimes we get this, uh, we, uh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but some of us wear crosses around our necks. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But we get this image that the cross is a pretty thing. You know, you got little jewels and such and such. And in Roman times, the cross was filthy. It was a disgrace. It was considered the worst way to die. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. It was a death reserved for slaves. Other than Jesus, justifiably, the most famous person to be crucified, we don't know if Peter was for sure or not. Legend says he was. But anyway, probably the most famous person to be definitely crucified was Spartacus. And if you don't know who that is, if you're not into history like I am, Spartacus is the leader of the famous slave gladiator revolt against Rome. He and thousands of his, of his slave followers were crucified all along the main road, the Appian Way that led into Rome. Basically, to serve, and they were left up there, sorry if any of you have delicate stomachs, but they were left up there till they rotted. Basically, they were human signposts. And that's, that's why the charges were always nailed above the person on the cross. This is what will happen to you if you rebel against Rome, in the case of Spartacus, if you rebel against Rome. Remember they wanted the charges to put over Jesus and Pilate, the best he could come up with was the king of the Jews. Well, that was those were his charges. So sometimes we get this idea that the, uh, that the cross well, it wasn't that bad. It was bad. That's aside from the, the extreme physical pain, torture, and agony. It was considered a simple, a disgraceful way to die. To be associated with someone on that cross could be rather hazardous to you, socially, financially, perhaps legally. You get, you get associated with a rebel with a slave, with the worst part of society. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, and for example, uh, Luke chapter 9, yeah, Luke chapter 9, people wouldn't have sort of brushed up, okay, well, put a thing right there. They would have thought, carry that cross. Carry that cross. They would have thought, bear public shame if need be, for, for his sake. So what happened when Jesus was crucified? His followers, how did his followers react, I should say? 
Uh, well, we just read that. He was, lo- oh, we didn't read it. We sang it. He was lonely. But what did they all do? They forsook him and fled. And many, at least some of them, John, for example, were there at the cross. They stood far off. But where did many of them spend the first few days after the crucifixion? Hiding. They were hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews were specifically told that. And so they didn't all hide, though. Not immediately. Turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Not all of Jesus' followers, even in the immediate, I'm talking about the first few hours after Jesus was dead, after Jesus was physically dead on that cross. Some of his followers weren't hiding. Now we know most of them were. We talked about now they're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. But not all of them were. And here's our second example of someone who quietly, if you will, he's not a famous person as the Bible goes. He's not, again, he's not Moses or David or such, but he risked himself. He risked quite a bit. And sometimes we don't quite appreciate that for God. So Mark chapter 15, verse 42 says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea is another person that the Bible doesn't say much about. Now, there are a few legends that have grown up around him, but we'll stick to what we actually know from the scriptures. We know he's important. How do we know he's important? He was a member of the council, or in some versions they, they call it by its name, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and very, a fairly wealthy person, obviously. He has that, that elaborate tomb. And he is now, what is he doing? He said, okay, well, isn't that just common decency? Remember what happened to people who were crucified. Usually they stayed up there till they rotted. Joseph was risking his social position by having anything to do with Jesus. Now the Jews did ask for, to be fair, for the, to, for the two criminals crucified with him to have their legs broken and taken down because that was Jewish sensibilities. But, but suffice to say though, Joseph of Arimathea was risking his position by having anything to do with Jesus. And he wasn't alone. We're told another gospel against that Nicodemus was there as well. And neither one of them, of course, had agreed to the council's condemnation of Jesus. But he, let's just stick with Joseph, risked his position. People of high social or religious class such as he, uh, they had a lot to risk. They had a lot to lose, we would say. A lot to lose and not a lot to gain by associating with such people. But Joseph took courage and went to the Roman governor, to Pilate, to ask for the body of Jesus. And he went to Pilate. Now that in and of itself was another act that was against Jewish social customs, especially that close. Remember the Jews didn't even want to go into Pilate's, uh, Pilate's, it wasn't quite a palace, but Pilate's fortress where he was because the Sabbath, you know, the preparation day was nearing. So here he is going to a Gentile, to a Roman, and using his influence. Do you think it, you or I, if anyone here, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but who here can walk right up to Governor Mike DeWine 
and just say, uh, we, we want something, Governor. No. Well, if, like I said, if you can, then please remember the community colleges. But no, we can't do that. We cannot do that. Joseph did, and he used his position. He used what he had to the glory of God. He used that influence, and he had money. He used that money. What did Paul say about money? And I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said, those of you who are rich shouldn't trust in those riches. You should use those riches to the glory of God. And so Joseph did here. So he went out to the cross. He took Jesus' bloody physical corpse down. He wrapped it, laid it in the tomb, and rolled the stone against the door. And of course, when people were crucified, it was extremely what? Public. The Romans picked hills to put people on when they crucified them for a reason. Again, these are human signposts. So all this is not going to be a secret. It's not going to be done in secret. It's going to be very, very public. And so certainly, you know, we can assume, we can reasonably assume, he had thought about some of the dangers and possibilities that could happen to him before he acted. But it says what? I mean, we just say, oh, well, why wouldn't you? Well, look at those two words in verse 43. It says, coming in, taking courage. Taking courage. It took courage to do that. The, the scriptures uh, yeah, and the holy, the, the holy divine inspired scriptures give him credit. He took courage. It took courage to do this. His actions fulfilled the prophecy about where Jesus was going to be buried. Like this Joseph, you know, we had two Robs in here. We got two Josephs here. We didn't plan that, but uh, there are two Josephs. So like Joseph, the husband of Mary, Joseph of Arimathea acted, and he couldn't see into the future. We can't either. We don't know how our efforts might, might work or will work to fit into God's plan. We are called to do the best that we can. The Bible is full of all sorts of people, as we said, who are famous and less famous, who took courage and did the best they can. Was Joseph afraid that, well, Pilate will say no? Well, it'll cost me my position. Well, perhaps I won't, somehow won't be persuasive enough, or etc. No, he did what he could. Let's turn to a third example. Speaking of, and, and linking, linked with that idea of, well, being persecuted and pressure from the world, turn over to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 9. In this chapter, we usually focus, or many times, of course, lessons will focus on Saul, who is soon to be renamed Paul, the Apostle Paul, who in this chapter, in the beginning of this chapter, it's important to know where we started from, by the way. What's the first verse of this chapter say? That Saul, he was still Saul. What was Saul doing? He was still, verse 1, Acts 9, 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder. The ESV says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, in other words, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Where What would happen to them? What had happened two chapters earlier? They'd be stoned to death, probably. Stephen was, remember? So this man is, well, notorious. He is one of the chief. He called himself later what? One of the chiefest of sinners. He recalls what he did. He found Christians. He dragged them before the authorities. He, he, was, he said he compelled them to blaspheme. He compelled them to blaspheme. And so, of course, we know what happens to him. For the sake of time, I won't read everything that happens to him here. But Jesus appears to him on the road. He is smitten blind. But now we're going to focus not on him. I said we're not going to focus on 
the famous people. Let's focus on someone else, starting in verse 10. A disciple named Ananias. Ananias. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, reading this ESV, sorry. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, it's easy, of course, to, to put ourselves, you know, perhaps a little bit easy, to put ourselves in this position. Remember who this is. You've just been called to go into the arch persecutor of Christians and witness to him. Currently in our, in our world, probably the man with the largest body count of Christians, if you will, would probably be North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un. And so someone like that, you're called in to go into this man who you full well know has authority. And Ananias is gonna say that here in a couple of verses, who full well know has the authority to lock you up and uh, drag you off to Jerusalem where the, uh, the punishment will be rather fatal. So was Ananias, did Ananias exactly volunteer for this? No, he didn't. He says in verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he knew, as I said, verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias was fully aware of who and what Saul was. But what does God, what does the Lord say to him in verse 15? The Lord said to him, go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. He is a chosen instrument. He's a chosen vessel in some versions. Okay. Yeah. Of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and for the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Then Ananias, Again, let's pick on Moses again. And what did Moses say? You know, did Moses have a lot to lose while well, Pharaoh could order him killed? So what did Moses say back in Exodus? Well, he made excuses. Well, I can't speak well. Well, send someone else. Well, did Ananias do anything of the sort? Did Ananias do anything like that? There's no evidence that he did. Verse 17 simply says, Ananias went. He departed. Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, on Saul that is, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So could Ananias have known, you know, Saul said, you know, he would show, oh, sorry, God said what? He said he would show him, verse 16. In other words, he's going to show Saul how much he must suffer. And he told Ananias, God told Ananias that uh, he was going to uh, carry his name, well, verse 15, that Saul was going to carry God's name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do you suppose Ananias full well knew that Saul was going to, most Bibles have them, in the back of your Bible, see all those arrows where Saul's all over the place, that Saul was going, or Paul, did he know that Paul was going to carry God's word to so many places? Could he have known the impact that he was going to have, indirectly that is, 
by telling by telling Saul, soon to be Paul, about Christ, about the gospel. Ananias was a little wary, we see, probably afraid to be anywhere near this man, but he listened. He listened to God, he went to Saul and laid his hands on him, restoring Saul's sight. So we should take courage then. Let's take encourage, let's take encourage. Let's take courage and be encouraged in the words of the Lord. And we should not neglect encouragement. We should not neglect encouragement. We're told that over, over and over again. But that's what, look at all the letters. We don't have time to do that, but look at all the letters written. And whenever it's possible to do so, even in letters like 1 Corinthians, in which the church has some major, major problems, or the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, a couple of churches, they had really nothing to encourage. But for the most part, whenever it's possible, what do all the letters do? They offer encouragement. You're doing this well. You're doing that well. I thank you for your efforts on behalf of the gospel. Yeah, sometimes then they will turn to the issues that these churches are facing in many cases. But they start with encouragement, and so should we, that it's often been said, and too often it's true, that, that too many Christians shoot their wounded. That people who are, we talk about that in Bible study, people who are struggling, who might be struggling with worldliness, worldly kinds of issues, who might be getting distracted by, you know, le by, by leisure or by work. We talk, you know, I teach politics, and we talk about most Americans are not very interested in politics. What are most Americans interested in? They're interested in their work, and when they're not working, what do they want to do? Play, have fun, you know, whatever your fun is, whether it's sports, movies, whatever. They want to have fun, work on, somebody mentioned work on their cars. Uh, we want to have fun. Well, people might be struggling with that. And one of the things we need to do is to encourage such people, you know, you really should seek God first. But coming to people and, and, and uh, so to say, browbeating is not very effective. In fact, it's usually counterproductive. But turn just, you know, just to a couple of examples. Stay here next. Turn over two chapters to uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 23, just one verse. It says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, or exhorted them, ESV. And he encouraged or exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord, or they should remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, English Standard Version. So he encouraged them all. One more, stay in Acts. Turn to chapter, chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. One more example. Just, again, we talk about the letters, but let's just stay here in Acts for the sake of time. What had happened in Acts 16? The church or, you know, had been persecuted here. This is Philippi. And Paul and others have been thrown in jail. And so... What does he do uh, when, uh, when he's let out of jail? Verse 40. So, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Sometimes, again, we just skip right to the, the instance. Okay, they're, they're thrown in prison. Now where are they going to go next? What do they do? We, we sort of pass over that. They encourage them. We are to encourage each other. Let's go back to where we started our metaphor about you know, baseball, if you will, or any other sports team. 
What do you see them hopefully doing? They're patting each other on the back. They did a great job. Well, how often do Christians, so to, so to speak, do the same thing? Do we pat each other on the back? Do we encourage each other? Do we say, well, we really appreciate, you know, that you're coming. Do we really appreciate that, you know, you're some, we know that you're having some, some sort of fiscal problems or financial problems or health problems, and you're still here. And uh, that's a great encouragement to us. And we appreciate that, you know, well, maybe, maybe your prayer wasn't as pretty as some people thought it should have been. Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't say anything about making your prayers pretty using flowery language. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote what? That not one of us can pray as we should. So it doesn't, so it doesn't matter what theological school you went to or you didn't. It doesn't matter how many letters you have after your name or you don't have after your name. We're told to do what we can. So maybe your prayer doesn't sound as pretty to some human ears as perhaps they would like it to, but what's often the revelation as bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. It doesn't say the pretty prayers of the saints, so to speak, the elaborate words of the saints. It says the prayers of the saints. What does God expect from us? What we can give. And that means we must not be afraid to try. Don't let the fear of failure, let's retranslate Mr. Ruth here, uh, don't let the fear of failure keep you from trying. We need to go to bat, so to speak. We will, in fact. Are we always going to succeed? No. There's a preacher I heard once, uh, another congregation said, preacher's not going to hit a home run. That's what those words he used. The preacher's not going to hit a home run every time he steps into the pulpit. And that's true. If any, if any preacher's honest with you, they or we are going to say, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had some that uh, were, were, not, were not good. I could tell from people's faces that I'm not reaching them. And it's just, it's not, it's not going so well. But I try to do the best I can. Hopefully everyone else here, whether you preach or whether you sing or whether you pray, whether you can, I cannot cook at all. I can't cook at all. But whether you can cook, whether you can clean, whatever you can do, we sing that song, Psalm 551, do all that you do in the name of the Lord. So if, we're current, if we are working in accordance with God's will, he notices. Now, there are several other songs in this book, like somebody did a golden deed, like talking about, what was it? Do not wait until, yeah, shine for Jesus where you are. Do not wait for some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to shed your light afar to the many duties ever near you. Now be true. Brighten the corner. That's the title. Brighten the corner where you are. But a couple more references here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, God notices, God notices our efforts here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This long chapter talks about our assurance of another life after this one. And verse 58, just one verse, it says, therefore, now he's talking about our assurance we have of eternal life. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, God noticed, and God notices. So, you know, to review things quickly, what did Joseph, husband, that is Joseph, husband of Mary, Joseph, husband of Mary, risked probably being a social outcast for God. Joseph of Arimathea risked all that, Plus, there's a very real possibility that he could have been associated with a condemned rebel, as Jesus was to Pilate, and have some very serious legal consequences as well. 
Ananias and other early Christians risked persecution, imprisonment, or death. So, thankfully, we live in a land in which we don't as yet face such things. But are we willing to risk failure, so to speak, or not doing, shall we say, let's reword that, not doing as well as we might like for Jesus? Are we willing to try again? Jesus said we must not be ashamed of him or his words. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 26. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that he is not ashamed, Romans 1, 16. He is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So, leave you just by referring to the, the parable of the talents. Now, we remember that. One man receives five talents, another receives two, and another receives one. The five-talent man does well. He's making five more talents. The two-talent man does well. He's making two more. Both of them are rewarded. The one-talent man doesn't. Why doesn't he, why didn't he make any money? The talent was money, by the way. Why didn't he make any money? Because what does he say? Well, I was afraid. I was afraid, and so I hid your money. Are we hiding the money, the abilities that God has given us? He thought of himself, and we see what God's reaction was, his attitude towards that. So my, my uh, appeal to you, if you will, is to use what you can and be encouraged. But if you've never put on Christ in baptism, you need to be encouraged to do that. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You need to be willing to confess your faith in him before men and repent of your sins and put him on in baptism. Then you can live that life, a life that is blessed, a life that is in God's service, a life that is, we talked about in the Bible study, you will be a redeemed child of God. But if you are a child of God, if you're a Christian and you've gotten discouraged, you've fallen away, as we said, we are, here, we are here to praise God. We're also here to encourage and build one another up. We're more than happy to encourage you and give you prayers or any other needs you might have. As any of you have, make it known as we stand to sing the song.